Welcome to the Hell of a Catholic Podcast. I'm Father Josh Allen, the chaplain at uh, Georgia Tech. I'm joined today by... Father Michael Silloway, the chaplain of St. Pius X Catholic High School in Atlanta, Georgia. Father Michael lives here at Georgia Tech in the rectory. And we have a very special event this evening. We have uh, 12 or so uh, guys from Georgia Tech who are up here. Uh, this is a podcast we're going to be talking about discernment and vocations and the priesthood. Uh, we're very happy uh, to have everybody up here for this, our kind of first group podcast. Hopefully the sound is good enough. Before we start, I'm going to put Father Michael on the spot, and I'm going to ask him to set the mood if he would please give us his rendition of Tantum Ergo. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was hoping you wanted embryonic savior. Nope. <laughs> awesome. All right, All right guys, guys, wait for this. This is good. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so that's Father Michael. He's a high school chaplain. <laughs> probably missed his vocation to be a middle school chaplain. <laughs> that's okay. So, guys, tonight we're talking about uh, talking about vocations, talking about priesthood. And the whole idea is really to answer questions. So does anybody have anything they want to start off with? Father, if you would start off and give us just kind of a general overview of one of your typical days, and I feel like we can probably go from there. General overview of one of my typical days. Like, we understand that you offer Mass every day, but... um, So, first of all, let's start by saying that my typical day and Father Michael's typical day are not like a typical priest's typical day. At all. Mm. Right? Like, most parish priests have a very different life than what we live, right? So, but to give you an example of that, right? Um, so here at Georgia Tech, uh, you know, because it's college, we I really don't start downstairs until around 9 or so, and then we go till 9 or so um, in the evening. Um, so what I generally do is I wake up in the morning, usually around 6, and then most of the time I go back to sleep because you people keep me up too late. Uh, and then uh, I'll wake up, um, take a shower, do that kind of stuff. I pray my holy hour in the morning usually. Uh, most of the time I do that up here. Um, again, because if I sit down in the chapel, it doesn't take but about 15 minutes before somebody's like, uh, Father, hate to bother you, but <laughs> can I ask you a question? So uh, <laughs> we pray up here. Um, then downstairs, and my normal day is appointments. So I'll do lots of spiritual direction, um, <clears throat> lots of planning and you know, the financial part of running this place, uh, meeting, planning liturgies, planning building projects. we got all kinds of building projects coming up. Uh, I do a lot of fundraising. Um, occasionally, I will, uh, occasionally I'll get called to one of the hospitals down here in town. Like last week, I got called, not last week, week before, I got called a number of times. Um, mass every day, confessions every day, uh, almost every day. And then uh, in the evening... I'm either involved in the evening stuff that's going on here with um, with the different uh, programs, or I have more spiritual direction appointments. I have about 40 spiritual directees, so that's a lot of appointments. Um, and that's a typical like weekday. Saturdays, I teach. I'm uh, I teach at Holy Spirit College, so that'll be all morning on Saturdays, and then every other Saturday we both teach in the permanent diaconate program and then sunday is just like a blitz of masses right Mm -hmm. we have three masses here on sunday plus confessions plus i tend to teach on sundays and then you got all kinds of other stuff going on so that's like a typical 
regular day for me. What about you, Father? Mine's very similar. It just starts a whole heck of a lot earlier. <laughs> um, I have to be at Pius. We have 715 Mass every day. Um, so I am generally up in between 530 and 6 and pray at my office of readings and morning prayer first thing. Then get my shower, get myself over to school, celebrate Mass. First period of the day I generally like to take is prayer time. And then uh, I'll bounce into all kinds of meetings that we've got, administrative meetings in the school, guidance meetings. We talk about issues with students going on. Um, return to my office, have time to answer some emails, do some planning with the director of campus ministry, uh, hang out, be available for students. Then it's during the lunch periods is where I do most of my ministry um, and after school, where we have opportunities for a lot of students hang out in campus ministry, eat their lunch there, just get to know them, hang out with them. And uh, during the Lenten time, we have this thing called Pack the Chapel, uh, just different spiritual offerings in the chapel, Mass, Stations of the Cross, Praise and Worship. Um, then the afternoon is kind of hit and miss. Sometimes there's more meetings, more, more business stuff going on in the life of the school, more planning, more email time. Um, and then when school ends, it's extracurricular. So there's, there's almost always a sporting event or a recital or a play or a concert that the students are doing. And that's, that's prime time to be there and let them know that they're loved. So um, that's, that's where most of my time goes. I get back here. Sometimes I'm back by 5. Sometimes I'm not back here till 10. And then uh, I generally uh, will uh, sit on that corner of the couch over there and uh, watch some TV and inevitably fall asleep on the couch. And then somewhere around one or two, bring myself over to bed and then start all over again. The, uh, the difference between what we do in like a parish priest, it's, it's roughly the same thing, except a lot of times parishes have early morning masses. So like at St. Bridget, uh, the place I was at before here, we had a 6.30 mass. So you'd have to be up for that. And then you do your personal stuff, like praying, working out, all that kind of stuff, in between the 6.30 and the 9 a.m. Mass. And then after the 9 a.m. Mass, it is just, like, crazy busy up until 7.30, 8 at night. Um, with hospital calls, also lots of spiritual direction, visits to people, planning stuff in the parish. I mean, parishes are, parishes are medium-sized businesses, you know? Um, the, the model for, like, priesthood in terms of how you manage your time and everything. It's much more entrepreneurial than it is corporate. Uh, you really, like, you do your work anywhere you can, all the time, anywhere, right? It's like the model is total availability. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, and if you're not, if you're not that, you're not going to get it done. So, or you're not going to be there when somebody needs you, you know? So it's like I'm constantly canceling and moving appointments because things come up. Like, you guys know I'm going up to Rhode Island, tomorrow for a funeral for, for a brother of one of our students here, our pastoral lackey, TJ, we're praying for you, bud. Um, and so, you know, I had 20 appointments that I had to move Thursday and Friday of this week. So it's just, that kind of stuff's always going on. It's crazy busy. I would say it's a 12 hour a day minimum. Yeah. Job minimum. And that counts six days a week, at least for me, most of the time I'll get a day off maybe about once a month. I try not to compromise that day off, like, <laughs> at all possible. <laughs> yeah. all possible. So I, I, bad things happen when that happens. But the, also the good thing is, in both of our positions, summers are much less busy. Very true. Much less busy. So, Michael. What's your uh, favorite activity among those daily activities, and does it feel like work, or does it actually bring a lot of joy? Favorite activity. What's our favorite activity among all the daily activities? Uh. Mine bounces back and forth between hearing confessions and saying mass. It bounces back and forth. It's funny, when I was about to get ordained, the thing I was looking forward to the most 
was hearing confessions because I'd had such powerful experiences in confession and, and I just really was looking forward to it. And I did love it, but what surprised me was how much I love saying Mass. And, um, and it, there'll be times that I just really, really love hearing confessions. There's time that I really love saying Mass. It's never that you don't like either one. At least I haven't so far. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I'd say those two things. Mine would be similar. I, I really do enjoy, enjoy uh, teaching moments too. Um, particularly, particularly youth things. Uh, RCIA too, that kind of level, adult faith ed- formation and education. Um, just being able in, in, a, in an environment where you're not constrained by this mass has to be over in an hour, so therefore don't preach more than 12 minutes. Um, where you can, you can just talk freely and answer people's questions and, and help people grow in their faith uh, in that kind of a dialogue classroom setting, also one-on-one. I, I really enjoy those kind of events. Um, in the high school, that doesn't happen all that often. Um, but in, in my daily life, I, w- I would say it's about the same. Confessions and Mass. John? So you, you, you guys shared your favorite uh, parts being part of your day and everything. And I guess outside of administering the sacraments, um, and I know you, Father Josh, you've been at St. Bridget. I don't know if you've been a parish uh, priest too, Father Michael. Cathedral. Um, okay, so what is your... What are your favorite parts, or, or what are the what are the things you really like um, about being either a college or, for Father Michael, a high school minister that are very different outside of administering the sacraments? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> 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 Definitely highlights of the day. <laughs> um, so out, outside of outside of the sacraments, what are my favorite things about pastoral ministry? Yeah, um, you know something I, I absolutely dreaded. Uh, in the seminary uh, was making hospital visits. That's a sacrament. <laughs> well, not all the time. Yeah, just, I mean, just say there's a sacrament. <laughs> there's a sacrament. <laughs> I, just, just troll. If, if, you, if you just, if, just when you walk into a hospital room, and, uh, and whether you're going to do the anointing, I, I don't see why you go to the hospital and not do an anointing. True story. Okay, so change it. All right, scratch that, reverse it. Um, Visiting the hospital is awesome. Though, so keep talking about that for a second. Okay, I'm going to keep talking about it. So um, I absolutely dreaded it because it's like, how, how do you walk into somebody who's suffering or some, some big kind of dramatic situation, some catastrophic event, uh, a huge moment in somebody's life where they're, they're not in a good spot? And how do you try to bring some hope and some joy, bring the Lord into that situation? And I dreaded that because I'm, I'm finding more and more that I'm more introverted than I ever thought I was, particularly when it comes to those kind of things. I don't, I don't enjoy just completely meeting new people and, hey, you know, the Lord's here with you and you're suffering. Um, and especially when you, before I was ordained and not having any, you know, sacramental grace to work with, um, I was like, I have nothing to offer you because I don't, I don't know how to talk to you. I don't know how to encounter you. Um, but through the couple of summer assignments I had as a seminarian, and then uh, after being ordained, and we actually go and you get to bring Christ's healing power through the sacraments, um, that's actually become uh, one of the highlights of ministry. I still get kind of like knots in my stomach when you, when you think about it. You're going in to see, you know, like we had a girl who was having excessive seizures, a pious student, went to the hospital to go visit her, and it's like, trying to help console mom and give give them hope that she's going to be okay she's she's going to make it through this and um that to me has become i i see the the crucialness if that's a word cruciality the crucial character uh that that belongs to the healing ministry of priesthood uh, whether it be sacramental or not but just entering into that situation bringing christ 
uh, to them through the sacraments, through presence, that kind of thing. I like a lot of things. Um, I mean, if you take the sacraments out, then we're starting way down the list, right? Because yeah. I would put oh, hospital yeah. visits up there. Um, like, even even stuff, even marriage prep, marriages, all that kind of stuff. I really love that, too. Marriage prep can be challenging. It's very frustrating sometimes. <laughs> um, but I would say the thing that I do outside of sacraments that I probably love the most um, is a tie between... Um, uh, mission work, and I've forgotten the other thing. I must not like it that much. No, giving retreats. Yeah, mission work and giving retreats. Um, that's probably the the things that I like the most. But in terms of like being at Georgia Tech, what do I like here? Um, I, I've I've said this to uh, a number of people in fundraising this time. I probably haven't said it to you guys, but um, I actually think this is probably the second most important apostolate in the Archdiocese of Atlanta. The first would be the chaplaincy at UGA. (laughs) (laughs) The second is Georgia Tech. The reason I say that is um, in college you have a really unique opportunity um, to help people go from following the faith, kind of following the faith their parents have, to really becoming leaders in the faith. Um, And all of you guys in here have, have... have been and are making that transition. I mean, and it's amazing. Uh, why is Georgia more important? Because it's bigger, and more Georgia grads stay in Georgia because obviously a degree is worthless. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get that in. Just there. kidding. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Shout out to my whole family. <laughs> Not your family. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, Georgia, you know, Georgia's approaching twice the size of tech these days. You know, I mean, it's crazy big. Um, so, in that in that sense, just because of the number of students and the fact that more Georgia students do in fact stay in Georgia, whereas Georgia Tech students they go all over the place, right? Um, that's why it's more important for the archdiocese. But I mean, college ministry is is extraordinarily important. Uh, so I I really enjoy the challenge, and I, I like being here. And as a tech grad, it's great to be back. I mean, I remember I got here, I was like here two days, and I was like, wow, these are my people. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be back. (laughs) Other questions? Yeah, I had a question. Um, How much have you changed? Because we see you, like, right now, these polished people. Polished people? (laughs) (laughs) I believe you just called us polished people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How much have you changed? So the question, just in case you couldn't hear it, was how much have we changed from before until now, these extraordinarily debonair, polished people that have become um, even some like before seminary until now? And as uh, before we answer that question, I would like to point out the patrons of the hell of a Catholic podcast, <laughs> which join us every time, but we've never mentioned before. The one is a nativity from Peru that is contained within a banana um, that's really polished. And the other is a wonderful game called Nuns Bowling. It's sinfully fun. So, as I'm going to let Father Michael answer the question about how polished he is. <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not a finished product. Um, so how have I changed from seminary, from before seminary till now? Um, I really feel like in my core, I'm the same person, right? 
Um, still a human being with very human interests. Um, I, I love my Jeep Wrangler. I love aviation. Um, I still have toys. You know, I'm, I'm still I got my iPhone and gadgets and crap and like. So there's a lot of earth still in me that I, I believe the Lord probably wants to root out in one way or another. But uh, my love of my family, my love of my country, and my faith, like a lot of that is, is still exactly the same as it was. And if if anything, it's grown deeper. All of all that love. Um, uh, I, I was, I would say, in, in high school and college, um, and even in the beginning of seminary, I was very a very timid person. I always always kind of jovial. I, I like I like making people laugh. Um, uh, but I was very timid and kind of reserved, and I, n- I never wanted to push buttons. Never wanted to be a troublemaker. Never wanted to do anything kind of wrong. Something something happened. Uh, it was at my fourth year in seminary, right after being ordained a deacon, where I was just like, you know what? I'm ordained now. <laughs> like I've kind of I've kind of I still got one more level of ordination to go. I got one more ordination to wait for, but um, I'm here. Like the Lord has brought me to to my vocation, and I'm I'm certain of it, and I can rejoice in it. And I can, I can start living freely and not have to be worried about, am I doing what God wanted me to do? Now I'm doing it. And so the, the, a change happened there where I just felt more free to become the man who God made me to be. And uh, so I, I stopped worrying as much. I still worry, but um, the, the ordination, if, if the grace of orders maybe did in me, besides you know the ontological change of priesthood, um, was really giving me the, the spirit of... of of greater freedom, uh, to be comfortable with myself, be assured that what God has done in me is, in fact, what He wanted to do. He's going to sustain me, and that, that gives me a lot of a lot more confidence than I ever had before. Um, so, I, like I said, I still got a long way to go. If I died now, um, well, I did go to confession just the other day, so I probably still got a, a pretty decent shot of very minimal purgatory time. Um, but uh, um, I, I don't know if they'd declare me a saint by looking at my life, which is. That, that, that's got to change. So I, I'm, I'm not polished yet. Uh, I would say that the biggest thing that's changed for me between kind of before seminary and now is I'm not as nice as I used to be. <laughs> you know, <I'm> okay. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, I, I say the same thing. It's like you notice that you're, the things that you're good at and the things that you're bad at don't really change. I think the biggest thing that changes is where your strength and your confidence comes from. Um, and there's like a, a tremendous amount of self-confidence. And I don't mean that in a, it's hard to explain this. I don't mean it in a, in like a personal human way, but there's a tremendous amount of confidence that comes with ordination and with people knowing that you're a priest. And it's uh it's amazing. It, it just gives you the ability to do what you believe is right uh, and not, not so much worry about whether other people agree. Um, sometimes you noodle over things a little bit, but, but it's mainly because you're trying to figure out what's right. Kind of once I know, um, I'm, I'm able to really firmly attach onto it now, not, not so much worry about what other people say. I like that. Um, I know like two weeks ago, so I had a couple calls, maybe three calls, I can't remember now, uh, to hospitals here in downtown Atlanta and all three of them were people in the uh, ICU who were not going to make it. So I go and the first one I went and I anointed them and the, the family was just a wreck and they're falling apart. And so we, we went anointed, did last rites and left. And the second one I went to you know, kind of walk in and the people are waiting for the priest. You know, and it's like 
not just that they want the sacraments, but they're, they need somebody to help them make decisions. You know, and it's amazing how you can walk into a situation like that. And, of course, you don't have the connection with the people that, that the family does. But you walk into the situation, and people are like, okay, they've told us this, they've told us this. And so I'm like, okay, well, we need to ask the nurse this, we need to ask the doctor this, following questions. We get the answers, and, like, I turn to the family, and I'm like, all right, he's not going to make it. It's time to it's time to let him go. And twice last week, basically, I'm the one that made the decision. It's time to turn off life support and let the person go. And I was there for it. And you see the families that are there, and they're just they're so thankful that somebody came in and just made the decision. You know, um, because they have no confidence in it. They're they're tied up in it. They don't know what's right. And we're able to come in and, and really, really help people with that. Not that that's necessarily the priest's job, but it's amazing how many priests have these stories, right, where you go in and, and in those moments of death, like, you really help people figure things out. It's amazing, like, dealing with funerals and funeral homes and people waffle and they're trying to decide all kinds of stuff. The priest walks in the room. It's like, okay, let's do this, this, and this. And they're like, oh, thank you, Father. That's, that's yeah. what we need to do, you know? Um, people look for that, and there's this confidence. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the grace of orders. Uh, that I just don't think exists before that. I'll second that. Yeah. Questions? Thomas? Um, in your experience, uh, what was the most important aspect when you were discerning your vocation? Mm. Mm. Yeah, everybody's different with this. Everybody's really, really different. Um, so the first thing you got to kind of know is your personality type. For me, generally speaking, once I've, once I've kind of grasped an idea, I'm all in, right? In some sense, I'm kind of extreme in that way. Uh, even my language, like if, you've, if you may have never noticed, but um, I'm always saying things in extremes, right? So it's like it's either the greatest thing ever or it's absolutely worthless, right? And, and, and anybody that knows me knows I don't mean that, right? So when I say, oh, no, it was terrible, they know that, okay, so it was like 92 out of 100, right? <laughs> um but in my case, I had a long kind of conversion process, but um, I remember I was working as an analyst for a private equity firm. It was kind of like investment banking, but not really. Um, one of those kind of Wall Street-ish finance jobs. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed what I did. Um, uh, I had one of those jobs that like anybody that graduates with a degree in finance wants the job that I had. It was a really fantastic job, and I, I loved it. But I remember through a, a number of kind of things that happened, coming to this realization that as much as I enjoyed it and however good I might have been at it, I didn't see that as what I was doing for the rest of my life. I didn't think it was what God was calling me to do. I looked at it and I thought to myself, this is, this is not the life God's called me to live. And I probably went about that the wrong way. I can't remember now. It's been a long time now. But... My guess is, knowing me, I probably thought to myself, this will not achieve the level of greatness that I need in my life, <laughs> right? Um, but nevertheless, you start asking the question. Uh, and I think the key is, and this, was, this is what it was for me, the key is to really and truly be open to whatever answer God wants to give you. And when you get it, to stop asking. That's just another way of doubting, right? We get the answer. 
God gives it to us, and then we keep asking, like, okay, so I think God wants me to do this, but I'm not going to actually do it. I'm just going to keep asking him, right? It's just, an, it's just another way of doubting. It's another lack of faith. Uh, and so in my case, when I got the answer, like, it was, it was then pretty clear. I was like, all right. I called the vocation director, and we started the process. And, uh, and for me, my story is not like a lot of people's, right? Some people have my story, right? But um, for me, I never really had big doubts about it. I mean, I never had a moment where I said uh, in seminary that, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do it anymore. There was a point where I wanted to change seminaries. Uh, but there was never a point. Once I, once I knew, like I kind of knew, and there was, never a, there was never a big moment that caused me to doubt that. Um, but then people have very different experiences with that. So, remind me of the question. Um, it was uh, <clears throat> in your experience. What was the most important aspect when you were discerning your vocation? The most important aspect. Um, something you did uh, and experienced that helped you. Okay. Um, if I can add like, on to it, also, um, Father Josh mentioned that once he kind of felt his vocation, he went ahead with it. Was there a certain point in your vocation discernment process where you? really stumbled or that was the most challenging for you to continue with the calling to the priesthood? Um, I would say the most difficult moment was when I realized I was going to have to leave Georgia because I really liked it there. Um, I, I was I was getting into a good groove. Um, I had a lot of really good friends and the realization that, okay, so if I, if I take this feeling, inward feeling seriously and I take, Father Higgins was the vocation director at the time, I take Father Higgins... Um, advice seriously, um, I've got to go. I've got to. I've got to leave this. And so, it's, I, maybe I'm kind of romanticizing it in my mind, but thinking of like leaving all behind to follow the Lord. And I look at it now as like, wow, what a beautiful thing. But at the time, I was like, this sucks. Because I, I remember going back to get my stuff out of the dorm after I'd made the decision to go, and uh, it was uh, rush week. So all these wonderful, beautiful coeds, <laughs> all decked out. And so the nines and everything all walking all over campus. I'm like, this whole priesthood thing, like, I wonder if that celibacy thing is really, like, fixed. Um, I wonder I wonder myself. Um, and uh, so it was a really hard thing to leave. I mean, you, you leave your comfort zone and, and what you know and what's familiar. I, I never considered myself a brilliant academic or scholar in realizing that, okay, so I, I thought I was going to be studying, uh, you know, physics and stuff, something that would lead me to an aviation career. Um, and now all of a sudden they want me to do philosophy into, into theology. It's like my brain, I didn't think, had the capability to work that way. I'd never really thought about the big questions of life. What does it mean to be? Like that was the stuff I really ever cared about. So it, my, my big hesitation came early on. But then once I transferred, uh, the diocese sent me to Franciscan University of Steubenville uh, to do their pre-theology program. Um, and I was surrounded by guys who were in exactly the same boat as me. Um, there was a lot of there was a community that we built up, and I, I found my place in there and found the Lord, and He led it the rest of the way. Um, um, I've had a, a lot of singular little moments along the way that I would consider were were very impactful, but uh, I don't know if there there was one thing in particular where I was like gung ho, straightforward, let's do this thing. Until until really, I think that the big the big breather was. Uh, one of the steps you do on the process leading up to ordination is you handwrite the letter, uh, a letter to the bishop, uh, petitioning him to ordain you. So that's where you, in your own hand of your own volition, 
are saying, uh, Archbishop Gregory, <laughs> um, I'm asking that you ordain me to the priesthood or to the diaconate. It was the first step. For both, you have to write this letter. Um, and so that's what, it becomes very real. And you, as you write that, you're just like, everything comes together. You see how the Lord's been working the whole time over the past seven years of your life. I'm sorry, your whole life, really, but in that the intensity of the seven years of formation. And it all just comes together, and it's like, yes, this is why God brought me into the world, because this is what he wants to do with me. And like we mentioned earlier, that's where you get that sense of that, of, of that a truly, let's call it sacral confidence, holy confidence. So you, you can trust that as you abandon yourself to the Lord, he's going he's gonna to take care. He's going to make it happen. How many times did you have to write your letters? Did you mess them up? I, the, the deacon one, I think I did three times. So you actually have to write these things by hand. They're quite long, too. Yeah. Right? They, give you, they give you the words that you have to write. It's just you have to write it in your own hand. Yeah, and I tried cursive, which I hadn't done since like fifth grade. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it was it was. It was well, they said they said you're supposed to do it in cursive, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so I wrote my first one like that, and I was like, I'm done with this. So I went back to my kind of half print, half whatever thing. The first one I had to write it like six times. Your ordination is probably invalid. It probably is. <laughs> <laughs> I have some 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 print in my uh, in my letter that nobody ever read. Right. Yeah. Other questions. Father Josh, um, you mentioned the other day that uh, your homily wasn't as good as it could be. <laughs> <laughs> How much time does it take uh, for both of you into like, um, preparing your, hom- your homilies? And like, how much? How does your audience impact like, your homily? Yeah. So the question, in case you can hear, the question was, uh, I actually said in the middle of my 1130 homily this last week, I, I stopped and I said, wow, this is not very good. You know? <laughs> and then I, I kept going anyway, um, which I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure like professors told us not to do that. Um, if they didn't, they should have. Uh, and then the question was, well, how much time do you put into homilies um, and prep? Um it kind of depends. What I my my routine is for normal Sunday homilies. Obviously, like feasts and stuff like that are different. For normal Sunday homilies, Sunday evening, the week before, I look at the readings, um, and so I start thinking about what I'm going to say the week before on Sunday, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's usually the subject of my uh, meditation, my holy hour, and then by Thursday, if I don't have an idea. I tend to scrap everything that I've been thinking about and just open it up to something else. And every once in a while, um, I kind of get this idea that I should talk about something that's totally different than what I was thinking. Um, And then uh, if I'm going to have it written out word for word, I'll write it then. Uh, I only write them out word for word these days if I'm going to talk on something that's particularly sensitive so I can make sure I say it exactly the way that I want to. Um, Otherwise, I make my points in my outline um, and then uh, deliver it on the weekend and Either the 11.30 or the 9 p.m. Mass will be the best. The 5.30 is never the best. <laughs> but either the 11.30 will be the best because it's the first time I've given it and it's fresh, or the 9 p.m. will be the best because I've fixed it all along the way. So, like, last week, the 9 p.m. was by far the best. At 11.30, I gave the homily. And, you know, it's funny. People come up afterwards and they're like, oh, it's really good. I really enjoyed this and that. And I'm thinking, hmm, most of it's nice. It's going to help you in life. Uh, 5.30, I tried to change it, and it still wasn't that great. And so at 9 o'clock, I don't actually do this very often, but 9 o'clock, I threw the whole thing out and just did. I did something completely different. It was awesome, though. So, 
There's something special about that 9 p.m. mass. I'm just saying. It's a good mass. It really is. Because I'm normally up here on the couch, and uh, <laughs> I can hear it through the wall. The, the music, the the people that are there, I, I don't know if it's because they're just... I don't know. The, I, the, the, there's a different spirit, without, without getting too like, ooey-gooey and whatnot, but there's a different spirit that comes upon the Catholic Center with that mass. It's just uh, I'd like my little antennas to pop up. But I want to answer the other half of your question about... Um, um, does the audience change the way you preach? I would say it absolutely should. Yes, absolutely should. I, one of my biggest frustrations is I, I I don't have a parish, so I bounce around Sundays. I'm all over the place, and uh, um, so I, I hope none of our permanent deacons end up listening to this podcast. But every once in a while, <laughs> I, I hope they all listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'll sometimes be find myself in a situation where it's deacon preach, and. Um, so, which, which is nice because I don't have to prepare a homily that Sunday. I get to kind of the weekend off, just go celebrate the sacrament, pray the Mass. It's a beautiful thing. But um, when, when you're at a life teen Mass, for instance, and the deacon is giving the same exact homily he gave to the highfalutin crowd at 1030, and like all these teens are just like zoned out completely, what the heck is he talking about? And maybe some of even the people at the highfalutin 1030 were thinking the same thing. Um, so it's like, what, what an opportunity we're missing that like somebody should have thought had a little foresight to say that this teen audience needs a different message than what you're going to preach to like the blue hair brigade that comes to early morning mass, mm-hmm. um, and it's 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 just that's just something you got to be aware of. You got to be aware of. So I try, I try. I'll admit, like when I was when I was at the cathedral, it was just so much easier to have one homily and then maybe try to like change a story or two just to make it fit. It's tough when you're in a parish and you got yeah. a bunch of masses to, to switch them up. Yeah. But, but in the situation I'm in now, I, I generally have one or two masses at a parish. And I can I can specifically gear it to the, the kind of the, well, let's call it the, uh, the what's the word I'm looking for? The the demographic of the group. So it's, it's something I think that needs to happen. That's one of the things uh, when Johnny asked earlier what I like about being here. That's actually one of the things that I do like uh, is that when I'm preaching, I don't have to worry about the fact that in one mass I've got 80-year-olds and 8-year-olds and moms and dads and single people and teens and all that other kind of stuff. My demographic is young people 18 to 28 who are ridiculously smart and all tend to be very analytical. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my demographic. Yeah, right? that's a peculiarity that I think. But it makes it nice, yeah. right? Because I don't have to worry about, um, I don't have to worry about varying my homilies so much that everybody can get something, right? Right? I can hit that demographic, and visitors might be like, "Hmm, that was a little deep" or something. But uh, for the most part, the students are getting it fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, fathers, I had a. Uh been fortunate enough in other inactivities of my life to be around some pretty like heady stuff where if you were to mess up in a situ- certain situation the biggest fear is not that you hurt yourself but that you end up hurting other people um, and a lot of group stuff and however that looks but I said that to relate the question to you and that you guys are kind of like the first and or last line of defense if I can use that when it comes to folks like us who are trying to worry about or think about either becoming a priest or doing it right whatever it is whatever that means how do you keep yourselves holy? How do you become the buck stops here kind of people? Because my greatest fear would be is that if and maybe when, you know, I'm still scared about that one, right? 
But like if and when I do the priest thing, that I do it wrong and I hurt other people mm. as opposed to myself more, which I realize is kind of like a heady thing, at least for me to grasp. But like, how do you keep yourself squared away and on the right path? Because you're it. Like we come to you, and that's what we you are it for us. You know, I think one of the hardest things in your first couple years of being a priest is to realize that even when you're completely on, even when you're being really careful, even when you're trying your absolute best, you still upset people. And I think it's really important to have. I think it's, and I, I think our bishop agrees with this, and he, they're very careful about it. I think it's really important that guys in their first assignment have a really good pastor because it, this does happen. You know, you, you get people that are, that are upset. So my first pastor was now Bishop David Talley. He was Monsignor Talley then at St. Bridget. And I absolutely love that man. You know, um, he had a completely open door to me at all times. He's still, when I text him, he pops back to me right away. It doesn't matter where he is. Um, and to be able to go in and talk to him and be like, okay, I just did this. I'm not sure it was right. And he gives me these stories, and he's like, okay, well, this is what I've done before, and this is what I've done. I probably would have done this in this case, which is what you did. And he gives you this perspective because the fact is you mess up a lot. I mean, there's there's no question about it. You mess up a lot. And if I could jump in and kind of qualify what I said, it's not so much in that you're going to offend people. Cause no, I'm not maybe, maybe saying offending people. Okay. I mean, even telling people stuff that either they take the wrong way or that they follow and it hurts them. Okay. Right? And and still, though, to further qualify for at least so I get the question out the right way, my apologies. But it's how do you keep yourselves holy? How do you check, I guess, in that sense of... Because if you guys mess up, like, it, of course, I'm going to butcher this, but woe be it to the man who leads the flock astray. Are we? He's like... Ten times more held responsible. I know it's terrible, but the point being, if you guys mess up, it's like super bad. So like, <laughs> we, we have millstones tied around our neck. But like, but that's like big boy rules, and that's awesome. But then, how do you bear that weight? I think so. So, I think uh, I was I I didn't understand your question, but I think I was the same kind of I, I have the same answer. What's really important with priests is that we keep our eyes fixed on Christ and recognize that we're not going to be perfect. Right? And we just keep trying to do our best. I think when we're talking about the judgment of priests and how harshly they will be judged, and I do believe they will be judged very harshly, okay? Um, I think that is based on whether a priest is really trying. The thing is, if you're given your best, like, what are you going to do? I remember, and you, you feel so bad about stuff. I remember one time um, getting two calls within about four minutes of one another. I remember telling you about this the night it happened. Uh, two calls within about four minutes of one another of two people dying in the hospital. One, both of them were at Northside Hospital. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. But one of them was in Northside Forsyth, which is up and coming, and another was in Northside Dunwoody. They're almost an hour apart. You know? And I only made it to one. And the one that I chose, it turns out that person was a daily mass goer who had been anointed like five times. I make it down to the other one that I didn't make it to. And this is someone who had been away from the church for a really long time. And basically the last thing they asked for before they went into, uh, before they went into the ICU was to see a priest. And that's the one who didn't get one. You know, and it's one of those things, like, I don't know those things, Right. 
Um, we get called. You do the best you can. I was calling for all kinds of priests to try to help. Whatever was going on that day, we just couldn't get it done. Um, I think if you're trying your best, then you just offer it up to God. You know, John, uh, John the 23rd, I'm going to get it a little wrong, but John the 23rd, uh, he used to have this thing he did every night. Pope John the 23rd. Uh, he used to say when he went to bed, he's like, Lord, it's your church. I'm going to bed. <laughs> right? I mean, at some point, you've reached the end of what you can do. And I think if you wake up and you work 100% the whole day and you get to the end of it and it's mostly been a failure, I, I still think you've done a good job. God is the one that provides the results, right? And what Father Josh said about keeping your eyes on Christ, that's absolutely the most important thing. And obviously tied into that would be your life of prayer. It's, it's got to be there. And keeping your eyes on Christ, the promises, most particularly the promises that we make at ordination, is faithfully living out those promises. Uh, I, I like to every once in a while go back, especially on the anniversary of my ordination, go back and revisit those promises that I did make before Archbishop Gregory and kind of use that as an examination of conscience over the past year of my priesthood. It's like, how faithfully I've been living this out. Uh, how deeply have I been diving into this? And I think that, that helps us stay in check because that, that helps us to remember what is our mission all about? Why did God go through all the trouble to, to rip us out of our old lives and to, to bring us into this mystery of the priesthood? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't for any kind of lame or, or half-butted purpose, but it, it's because of he's trying to bring more souls to himself. So when you, you approach it from that angle, constantly keeping uh, a close examination of your own soul and your prerogatives, your, your adherence to mission, um, keeping your eyes on Christ, I think that's, that's the most important thing to do. The other thing is the personal prayer life. Very important, right? Very, very important. It's got to stay consistent. Um, and I think almost any priest would tell you that the worst times in their priesthood have been times when their prayer hasn't been so good. And when I say not so good, I don't mean that the prayer is dry. I mean they're not praying, right? Or they're not getting to everything, or they're not doing what they, everything that they normally do, right? Um, and then the best times are even the times when everything seems to be going badly, but the prayer life's in prayer life's in order. You know, it makes a humongous difference. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, John. Can you guys give me an example? I guess maybe the first time, or maybe one of the biggest times, had it really hit you the full magnitude of your vocation. Like maybe a time that something happened in your priestly life, and you're like, "Holy cow!" Like this is not me. This is what it really means of what I'm doing. Um, so this was well. I've, I've got two. Right. So the um, so I was ordained on Saturday, June 26th, and. So my first mass was on Sunday, and then I was I was living in um, at the rectory at Holy Trinity in Peachtree City. That next day, like the pastor took some vacation. He's like, "Well, if you're going to be here, I'm I'm bouncing." So, <laughs> so I, I was I was in charge of like the daily masses and everything and the confessions. So I, I I celebrated the morning mass and I was so excited. I was like, "Oh my gosh, morning mass is so legit!" And and a lady came up to me and asked me if I would if I would hear a confession. I was like. Oh snap! Like I, I had heard a buddy's confession, so that I could. There's a beautiful tradition of giving your stole, the stole that you used for your first confession to your dad. And so, I, right after I was ordained, I was like, I gotta hear somebody's confession, so I can get the stole blessed, and it can be in a confession. I give it to my dad. Um, so I'd only heard one confession at that point, one real one. And so this this lady comes and she confesses, and it was beautiful. But it, it was this eye-opening moment 
obviously won't tell you who it was or what she confessed, but um, <laughs> it was a powerful moment where you're like, God's grace is real. Like what he is doing through me is real. He is bringing his healing. Sins were just crushed through Christ's own words, his power, his spirit through me. Like blew my mind. And so in my first little mini assignment, I was in St. Teresa's in Douglasville. And it was only a two month long assignment, but it was in the first week or two that I was there. Uh, the pastor was really busy. The parochial vicar was gone. So I, me being this kind of the other priest there, um, this emergency call came through for a woman who was dying in the hospital. And um, getting there to her bedside. And you don't, we practice anointing of the sick. We practice um, the different sacraments, you know, in, in little classroom settings. But shoot, first time you're by a dying person's side and you're saying the apostolic pardon, like granting the complete remission of sin from the keys that Jesus himself gave to St. Peter, you're, you're calling upon the full authority of the church to release this person from the bondage to sin. Like I was weeping because first it was, it was a sad moment. This one was dying, but then the overwhelming, just like, Holy mackerel. Like this woman is on her way to God and I'm going to be the last voice that she ever heard. And it was, it was giving Jesus's mercy to her through the apostolic pardon and the anointing of the sick. It's just, it was so overwhelming. I, I went home shaking. I had to talk to the pastor about it. I was just like, I need to debrief. Cause like I'm so wound up right now. Um, it was just a really, really, really cool moment. I've had a whole bunch of these, but one that's very uh, appropriate to tech uh, to you guys is... So prior to coming here, uh, it's a real privilege. I mean, it's a real privilege to be there when someone realizes what God's calling them to do with their life. So I've been present twice when a guy has realized he's really realized that God's calling him to be a priest. And uh, one of the guys is a person here at Tech. Um, and then also something, and then one of them happened before I came here. Uh, and then also uh, something that's happened at Georgia Tech that has never happened to me before is that I've been in the middle of a conversation when someone realized that the person they're dating is the person they're supposed to marry. And you see the you see the look come over their face, you know, um, this just amazing thing that happens. You know, where you know how it is where you kind of glaze over a little bit, you kind of sink back into yourself, and you're having a moment with God, and so it's like one of these cosmic moments. And to, to be there and to to watch that, it's an amazing thing. The priests get to see the best moments and the worst moments in everybody's life. All the stuff in the middle, we're not part of. But the best moments and the worst moments, um, we get to be there. And and I think most of us, our experiences are like that. I mean, I've got story after story after story of worst yeah. moments and being there for those and seeing what happens and best moments, stuff like that. I mean, it's just incredible. I, I heard a uh, like one of the greatest things, I think one of the greatest things, maybe the best thing, I don't know, uh, that a priest does in a year is first confessions. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. First confessions. You get these little kids and they come in and they're so nervous and they're like rocking around in their chair and whittling and turning and all this other kind of stuff and saying their sins and and then you get done and the only thing you can think of is just tell them how much God loves them but they're not listening to you because they're so nervous. They're just in their mind, they're just repeating the act of contrition. So they don't, <laughs> right? And they're looking at you and they're nodding their head and I'm like, you're not listening to a word I'm saying. 
They're just nodding their head, right? Um, and every once in a while, you get a kid that really listens. And so I had one, a, a family friend, who came the other day for his first confession here. And uh, I haven't gotten to do those in a long time. And he sat down in a little chair in my office, and he was really nervous. And, you know, so we talked, and he gave his little sins and forgot one, and he was, like, really stressed out about it. And, <laughs> and then, uh, and so I'm listening. And of course, I, I said, well, was it this? And you should have seen the look he was, he was like, oh, how did you know? It's <laughs> like, well, you're in second grade, and there's only about six of them that you ever confess. This is the one you left out. Right? Um, but it, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing to see people in their most vulnerable time trusting in God and trusting in um in this ministry that God has granted us. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I said this before, I said it now, I'll say it, hopefully I'll say it every day the rest of my life. Uh, if, if, if people knew how good it was to be a priest, it actually wouldn't be fair. Then nobody would get married. I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't be fair. Uh, I, it's like God would take away your freedom if, if you actually knew. And you don't know. Like, all the prep in the world and all the trailing priests and hanging out and doing all that kind of stuff, you don't know a single thing about it until you're actually doing it. It was all worth it. All the years of formation, everything, for one Mass. Oh, yeah. It was it was worth it. For one Mass. And everything else has just been a bonus. So I think that's a... Uh, that's a good place to stop this extraordinary long podcast. Uh, so thank you guys for coming this evening. And uh, this is the Hell of a Catholic podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, objections, or if you want to say anything bad about Father Michael, send us uh, an email at podcast at gtcatholic.org. And God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>